Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Strategies to prevent over-policing? Go to policestopsurvey.online for more information and to take part. That's policestopsurvey.online, a 3CR supporter. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. (laughs) 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 Welcome to Tuesday Packing on 3CR. With, with, oh yes, who is here? So I'm Lauren and I'm on the panel today and it's Woo. been a couple of months. And last time I sat on the panel, I accidentally choked myself to death on my headphones. So we're in for it's a wild the best ride. memory of I was all there, time. but I, yeah. But it's been reenacted enough times for you, Anya, that you feel like... I'm sorry you almost died, but it was so funny. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, yeah, so we have Lauren. Yes. We have George. Hello. And myself, Anya. Ayan's not here today because she's sick Mm. and we miss her and hopefully we can play a couple of songs to lift her mood. Yes. I hope she's not listening. I hope she's in bed, asleep, (laughs) recovering. Probably. Yeah. (laughs) mm. So how was everyone's weekend? Good. Um, There were a couple of rallies last week Mm -hmm. um, that that went quite well. Um, The 38 Nations rally Mm. um, last week, which was organized by Lydia Thorpe. and for any listeners out there that um, haven't heard about this issue, the rally was about um, the Aboriginal representative body, which will be orga- like dealing with a treaty or trying to set up a treaty. Mm. Um, and the issue is that they've only allowed 38 nations out of 38 nations, uh, Indigenous nations in Victoria, to have a seat at the table, which is obviously a mass- massive issue of not, you know, not allowing every group to be represented. And mm. so this is pretty. You know, it's a, it's it's pretty. Fr- it must be pretty frustrating for these groups, like to to finally be at this point mm. where okay, let's organise a treaty, but we're only going to allow eleven of you to mm. participate. Um, <clears throat> so it was pretty. Yeah, the the, the rally was really um, really powerful. There were some incredible speakers. Lydia Thorpe was amazing. Mm. Um, Robbie Thorpe spoke as well, and there mm. were some Indigenous um, elders and leaders who spoke, and some performances. And then they opened it up to the um, to the public um, if there were any any people from other indigenous groups that hadn't hadn't spoken yet to come up and speak. Mm. And I was thinking that it's the only rally that you could have where you opened it up to the public and you didn't get a bunch of people coming up and completely derailing <laughs> yeah. the the issue to something else entirely. Like everyone came up and they spoke for their own families and communities, mm. and it was just. It was so powerful mm. just to see the way people stepped up and, uh, yeah, it was, yeah, very, 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 very cool. Mm. 
Um, and <clears throat> the second rally I went to was the um, the rally to close Manus and Nauru on the mm-hmm. weekend, mm-hmm. Um, which also went, went really well. But there were a couple of Nazis that attended the rally and started filming. Mm-hmm. So they just they just kind of like standing there filming everything, and it was kind of confronting to kind of see how they were like in the space and. Mm-hmm what they were trying to do and trying to kind of work that out. And there was lots of protesters just coming up to the their camera and just putting the, their yeah. um, posters in, in mm. the camera's view. Um, and then a cu- there was a couple of like, scuffles because I think people were pretty like yeah. kind of... It's anti- a weirdly um, intimidating thing it to is, yeah. film someone. Like, yeah. Yeah, it's happened That's to us at a few protests yeah. and like... I guess you just don't know what they're going to do with that information. Exactly, mm. exactly. And I, yeah, I was talking to a friend about it, and he said that they try and they do that so that they can target leaders of of different mm. organisations, mm. so they're collecting information. Especially if you're a woman. Yes, it's just and in the context of this whole, you know, Gavin McInnes and the yeah, Proud Boys yeah. and that so blatantly inciting violence. Mm. Um, I think it's it's even it feels even more dangerous mm. when pe- if people know who you are or what you look like. Yeah. Um, and because you don't know who they are either. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, also, just um, in terms of the speakers, Huang Chong spoke, who's the member for the uh, Greens member for the Western Metropolitan Region. Mm-hmm. And I was just so impressed by the fact that, and maybe it's kind of a low bar, but often when politicians get up to speak at refugee rallies, they tend to kind of make it into this very political issue and talk about what different parties have done or not done mm-hmm. and how their party is the best. Mm-hmm. She didn't say anything like that at all. She just spoke directly to the issue. Good on And I was, her. like, really, like, yeah, that was cool to see. Mm. Um, but I just have a very, very quick audio that I just recorded on my phone, so it's not very good quality, but it's just of um, the organiser of the protest's response um, at the end of the rally after the, you know, all the sort of Nazi mm-hmm. intervention. Mm. So I'll just play that now. We're black, we're white, we're Asian, we're gay, lesbian, trans, intersex and straight. We are every gender, every sexuality and a multiplicity of ethnicities and we are united to say kids off, all off, bring them here. Yes, I suppose pretty emotional by the mm. end of the day and I think mm. yeah just coming back to that those guys it was just just confronting to see to see those people mm. and know and know what their politics are and just I don't know just how can you have so much hate and mm. then come to this space yeah. and think that that's okay to do that there was a very heavy mm. police presence as yes. well yeah there? yeah mm. yeah which is also just really off-putting mm. as with all rallies yeah the um I feel like the police presence at the kids, the children's march, mm. was so confronting. Yeah. Like, it just, I don't know, I feel like that was the point at which everyone was like, okay, this is out of control. Mm. Yeah, like, horses, they're children. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's just so unnecessary. Mm. Yeah. And it just makes you feel unsafe. In yes. The, yeah. And intimidated <clears throat> in the crowd. Mm. Mm. <clears throat> yes, horses are unpredictable, but so are cops, like, mm. yeah. <clears throat> News headlights? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Maybe I'll go first. 
far-right firebrand Jair Bolsonaro won a decisive victory on Sunday in Brazil's presidential runoff election. His win represents a significant break in Brazilian politics as voters abandoned the leftist party that had dominated past elections. The 63-year-old former Congress member won about 55% of the vote, handily defeating the leftist Workers' Party candidate Fernando Haddad. The 60- Bolsonaro was favoured to win after he narrowly missed winning the presidential election outright in the first round of voting earlier in October. The former army captain has promised to break the system, and he capitalised on the political and economic turmoil in Latin America's largest country, promising to restore order in a country beset by violent crime and still reeling from a massive corruption scandal that touched all parties and politicians in Brazil. Bolsonaro has also expressed an affinity for Brazil's past dictatorship, leaving some to wonder whether his rise will leave Brazil's democracy vulnerable, though he promised to honour the Constitution in his victory speech on Sunday, the New York Times reported. Bolsonaro's showing on Sunday is even more remarkable because he largely began his presidential campaign as a fringe candidate in the Social Liberal Party, a once-marginal party that has also made significant gains. He also has a long history of making controversial racist and sexist statements. His unfiltered rhetoric and his law and order platform have earned him the nickname the Trump of the Tropics. Mm. Oh, boy. Mm. And on the way here, I was just flicking through Twitter and um, Benjamin Netanyahu has mm. tweeted this big warm welcome to him and is like, can't wait for our countries to work together. And it says it all, really. Mm. Mm. It sets the tone for the rest of the world. Mm. Yeah. On to me? Mm. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Last week, the New South Wales government put forward legislation on foster care, which could give the courts the power to order adoption if children cannot be sent back to their families after two years in care, which Guardian Australia claims has been done in a quiet manner without consultation from organisations in the sector. The bill sets a two-year limit for children to be in foster care. By the end of the two years, the child will either, either be taken back to their family or adopted. In support of the bill, New South Wales Premier states that children need a loving and safe home for life, and therefore highlighting the importance of finding a permanent home as quickly as possible. <clears throat> However, the bill has caused concern from a, from a number of organisations, including New South Wales' peak body for Aboriginal Child and Family Services, ABSEC. Aboriginal children make up 5% of under-18s in New South Wales, however comprise of 37% of children in care. ABSEC Chief Executive Tim Island told Guardian Australia earlier in the year that using adoption as a last resort is to rely on a child protection system which, according to reports, fails children and family. There is ultimately significant concern that the bill could lead to another stolen generation. And if you're interested Mm -hmm. in reading more about... (coughs) Issues to do with out-of-home care, there was a a report called the Tune Report, which came out in um, June, I think, this year, um, which details some of the issues with the current um, out-of-home care system in Mm. New South Wales. Mm. (coughs) A report released on Monday by Good Shepherd Australia has found that welfare-to-work policies are pushing single mothers into insecure employment. The study involved in-depth interviews with single mothers on New Start or parenting payments. It found that women were told by job active providers to fake job applications, look for cash in hand work, or were forced to leave work to attend meetings with their providers. Only one woman out of the sample had been successfully assisted in finding work. 
Welfare-to-work reforms were introduced by Howard in 2006, and later on, Gillard moved single parents onto a lower payment from single parents' payment to New Start when their youngest child turns eight. Currently, a Senate inquiry is underway on the Job Active Network, which is where the government puts employment services in the hands of private contractors. Mm. (coughs) Yes. Um... So Angela Merkel has announced that she will step down as German Chancellor at the mm. end of her term in 2021. Um, she, it's a bit unclear as to why exactly, but it's um, her announcement follows poor results in the Hesse state election on Sunday, um, where her party lost a significant amount of ground. Mm. Um, and in Sri Lanka... Um, there is a bit of a what's being called potentially a constitutional crisis. The Sri Lankan president sacked the prime minister and replaced him with the former president, Rajapaska. Uh, this sudden change to Sri Lanka's regime has blindsided a lot of political observers and members of the international community. Um, it's worth noting that the former president and now current prime minister, Rajapaska, was feared by political opponents, his critics, and especially the Tamil-speaking people mm. in Sri Lanka during his 10-year reign uh, between the 2005 and 2015, which saw the technical end of the civil war. Um, under his rule, Al Jazeera reports that activists, journalists and politicians with opposing views were harassed, intimidated, abducted and even murdered. Um, and now that he's back, activists and Tamil people are fearing that they will once again become open targets for their country's government. Mm. Um, there was, There's already been the death of one man when the bodyguard of the deposed Prime Minister um, opened fire on a crowd on Sunday or on the weekend um, and there are foreign countries now issuing travel warnings so Mm. Sri Lanka is in a bit of state of flux Mm. and watch this space It happened so quickly as well. It really did. Yeah Yeah. Alright, well to lift our spirits a little bit (laughs) over the weekend I (coughs) watched A Star Is Born (laughs) (laughs) The new Lady Gaga and Bradley <laughs> Cooper film. It was incredible. Highly, highly recommended. Yeah. Bring lots of tissues, though, and oh a bottle no. of water. I was parched by the end of it because of all the sobbing I did. <laughs> wow, really? And the whole cinema, yeah, you just heard everyone sniffling and sobbing away. Um, <clears throat> so I thought maybe, <laughs> maybe we'll play a song from that uh, movie. It's called Always Remember Us This Way. You look at me, babe, I want to catch on From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio 855am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. The Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is continuing its Stop Failing Our Kids campaign until this year's Victorian state election. 
We're asking people to sign an online petition and to send postcards to Premier Daniel Andrews, calling for his government to abandon plans to build a $288 million youth prison at Cherry Creek. We want that money directed to culturally appropriate programs to address the underpinning issues rather than incarcerating children. For more information and to sign the petition, visit Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Postcards are available at 3CR and locations listed at istramelbourne.com. Premier, it's time your government stopped failing the kids. Istra Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Tuesday breakfast. What? Oh, no, I just it kept playing in the background. <laughs> um, on 3CR with myself, George, Anya and Lauren. Mm. So, old news. Oh, that's what we're... No oh, wonder yeah. it felt weird. <laughs> some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're gonna have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty. Let's get right down to the real nitty-gritty now. One, two, nitty-gritty. Beautiful. So this week on Alternative News, we wanted to talk about what started as just what seemed like a sex worker phobic article published in The Age, (laughs) but (laughs) just one of those. Um, So content warning, we will be talking about um, sex worker exclusive radical feminism and also potentially transphobic Mm. people. Um, And you'll see how we get there. yeah, so this this issue has gotten a bit bigger than we thought. So a couple of days, or last week, um, a woman named Caroline Norma, who is an academic at RMIT, um, published an opinion piece in The Age, um, basically saying that if the Victorian government goes through with a proposal to deregulate sex work, it would be akin to... Um, to kind of, I mean, it's a classic Swerf argument, but it would be akin to saying that human trafficking and slavery and sex slavery was okay. Um, and, and essentially just calling for maintaining the illegality of sex work, um, or criminalizing. Please jump in because I can tell that you want to say something. Well, yeah. And in the, in the name of kind of protecting sex workers, which is often where these arguments kind of go. Yeah. And, and making a lot of claims, um, unsubstantiated in the article if she has evidence then she might have liked to have put it in her piece um but but, you know making quite grandiose statements about Mm -hmm. the general ethnicity of particular sex workers in melbourne um and these really high rates of human trafficking and all of that sort of thing um anyway so this was published as an opinion piece with no um no piece next to it by, for example, a sex worker or anything like that. Um, and the Vixen Collective indicated, so the Vixen Collective are a peer, um, I think they're a peer-run organisation of sex workers in Melbourne. Yeah, in Victorian. In Victorian. Yeah. Um, Victorian organisation. And, and they contacted the age and asked for a right of reply. Um, yeah. I, yes. Mm. It's, I mean, reading it and also... Um, reading Caroline Norma's Twitter last night, it's it's classic Swerf language. So sex sex worker exclusionary radical feminism, um, it's it's both reductive and emotive language. So this idea of defenceless sex workers who are in need of protection, and so she uses um, some of these phrases uh, I'll read now. So sanctuary, not sanction. Mm-hmm. Um, we can't protect them if we give free rein to those who prey upon them. 
who who's preying upon them i'm not sure it's never really made, um, mm. kind of spelled out i'm um, also using terms like prostitution instead of sex work which mm. obviously um is quite indicative of someone's you know political views on this type of work um and then also referring to sex work as slavery which lauren mentioned and i was talking to a friend last night and we were both um agreeing that it's it's kind of this appropriation of language um uh and appropriating struggles of women of colour like by using a lot of these terms. And these movements, these SWERF movements and anti-sex work movements are largely um, uh, by white cis mm. women. Mm. But they use this language kind of in there to sort of justify their cause. Mm. And that the experiences and the voices of sex workers are completely absent. absent. It's always talking on behalf of, and as you've mentioned, without any research. Mm. Or there is research which is basically cherry-picking, and this is what Scarlet Alliance said in their response to this article. Mm. Stop cherry-picking these stories to try and speak for our entire community. Yeah. Because it's completely inaccurate, and it's troubling that someone who is an academic is allowed to publish this kind of stuff. Mm. Like, how can... and, And a lot of the information in the article is just incorrect, yeah. If you wrote that, if you were a student and you wrote an essay with incorrect information, you would mm-hmm. be, at, at a university, you would be held up to academic integrity mm-hmm. policies. Mm-hmm. If you're an academic at a university and you write something that's inaccurate, then you're also held up to those standards. How come if you write something in the media, mm. you know, you're allowed to kind of get away with misinformation or inaccurate information, not even source where you get these statistics because there was that one... Um, stat about the number of Asian women working. Um, Which was a real red herring in there. Like, yeah. It seemed to have no relevance. Yes. But then it was a statistic in the article. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And there's a lot of um, anti-trafficking organisations like NGOs mm-hmm. worldwide which are predominantly run by white people who are trying to defend, you know, um, it's it's just such a kind of like reductive kind of Mm. Um, story narrative that they tell about the defenseless women of colour that are migrating for you know and it's often completely inaccurate and then they pick a few select stories Mm. to to sort of say that this is everyone's experience and therefore we need to completely eradicate sex work yeah Mm. but they don't even understand like they don't actually look or they don't listen to what sex workers are saying um, about what would make them most safe. Yes. Mm. And so it's kind of hard yes. to take them seriously when they're not actually listening to what people want who are working in those industries. Mm. How can you be speaking on behalf of people without having Yeah. That? And I'm not recognising that sex work has always been... It, 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 is, it is a fact of human life that there will be sex work where there, is, where there are people. There mm. will be. And in that way, is it not better to have it, I guess, regulate, like in, you know, in whatever context that means. But if, if your concern really is about people who may be being exploited, um, firstly, extend that to all areas of the workplace, in mm. every workplace. Mm. Yes. But secondly, um, their argument just really falls right down. And I wanted to ask you, George, as, mm. a, um, as a media professional, <laughs> <laughs> what, is, what is the obligation? Is there an obligation on the age if somebody is writing an article, holding themselves out as an academic, well, they are an academic, but choosing to use their academic mm. credentials to bolster their opinion piece, which is not backed up by research and evidence, is there an obligation on the newspaper when publishing that to do anything or to offer rights of reply or yeah. to, you know, what's what's the deal? I think that's a really interesting question. I mean, a lot of, I mean, legitimate... 
um, news outlets would be signatory to the MEAA, the Media Entertainment Arts Alliance Code of Ethics, Mm -hmm. which um, would state in some of its principles about uh, the need to... uh, uh, the need to use factual information. So I think that you could definitely hold the age accountable if there is inaccurate information in the article. Mm. And maybe it's just about calling that out. And I suppose Jane Green did that in her response on behalf of the Vixen Collective, which I think came out yesterday. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I'm not, but I'm actually not sure if that ever goes anywhere. But I, anyone is able to make a complaint to the MEAA, so that could be worth... Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, it could be worth doing to see if there is, you know, at least that they would that um, Caroline Normal would have to come back and kind of say where she got this got yeah. these stats from. Yeah, yeah. I uh, think that's um, maybe that's a good a good thing that we can all start using more yes, is definitely. in this this time of. Mm. But it's pretty con- just coming back to her Twitter. Yeah, because I spent yeah, a lot yeah. of time reading it last night because I was trying to make sense of you know who is this person working as an academic. And, you know, there's a lot of transphobic content on there um, that the issue of um, trans women um, as athletes Mm. was a big thing that came up. And there was also an article which I found found this really interesting because I actually got my students in um, one of my gender politics subjects to unpack this article. It's by Julie Bindle, who's a radical feminist. She wrote this very um, sort of strong radical feminist sex worker exclusionary article about um, sex work being um, rape Mm. Um, and I thought you know the fact that she's she shared this she shared this article only a couple of days ago so she has some very very strong views on on this kind of work Um, and so everything was kind of just fit very neatly into this Mm. swerf and turf political perspective yeah it's um it's such a, the, the package. Yeah, exactly. And hmm, I guess it also, as somebody who studied under a a turf and a swerf, um, studied gender politics at Melbourne under um, Sheila Jeffries, mm. I know that certainly when I got to university, I didn't know which way was up and I didn't know what was or wasn't. Um, you know, my lived experiences were neither as a trans woman nor as a sex worker. So yeah. um, I it's, guess I, I'm yeah. a bit concerned about Caroline Norma's students, I guess. Absolutely. And the, and also the people reading that article, because I think you mm. pointed this out the other day, up, up, approaching an election, what, is, what enters the public space is really crucial. And this is an issue that will be contentious for this election. Um, and so that's why it's so important that people have stood up to this article and said, you know, this is misinformation or this is harmful mm. to sex workers and this is why. Um, and I also just wanted to um, read this quote, which is from a... There was a poster series done, I think, through Scarlet Alliance, which is the Australian um, peer sex work organisation, about um, migrant sex workers. And I think that this is really relevant for this particular story. And so um, they write that there seems to be an ignorance and voyeuristic fascination with migrant sex workers that is perpetuated by a seemingly never-ending stream of ill-informed and poorly researched media stories. Dangerously, these stories peddle well-worn stereotypes, which then become public opinion and are the drivers behind bad policies that overstep the fair and reasonable application of the law. When it comes to migrant sex workers, fair and reasonable goes out the window and the voices of actual migrant sex workers are always absent. So this really fits into kind of a, a, a pattern of writing about what sex work is and what migrant sex work is, mm. um, which 
excludes completely the voices of mm. anyone with this lived experience. Classic white saviour complex, yes. erasure and yep. exploitation. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. You always teach me so much during alternative <laughs> news. Is that... Shall we move along to yep. <laughs> our first interview of yeah. the day? Yeah, and I guess anyone can read <coughs> up, you know, you can read Caroline mm. Norma's article if you want to hear more about it. You can read Jade Greed's response. I think response. perhaps we can post both of them on our yep. um, Tuesday Brekkie Facebook page um, and people can, yeah, yes. can see what our rage was all about. Yes, and Jane Green directly responds to the misinformation of that article. Fantastic. So I think it's quite useful to kind of understand, you know, what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> this is for you, George. Hi, I'm Maurice. And I'm Mario. And we're Chronically Chronically Chilled. A program that aims to provide a platform to those living with chronic and invisible illness, as well as exploring topics that impact on our daily lives. Listen to Chronically Chilled, the first Wednesday of every month at 6pm. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. We are delighted to be joined on the phone now by Ruby Hamad. Ruby Hamad is a writer and a PhD candidate at the University of New South Wales, and she's a former weekly columnist at Fairfax, and she currently contributes to the Saturday paper and to the UK-based website, The New Arab. She's joining us this morning to discuss her recent article, Uh, raising the white flag. Good morning, Ruby. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. Thank you. So we'll jump straight in. Um, In your article Mm -hmm. that was recently published in the Saturday paper, so I think it wasn't this weekend just gone, but the one before, you make the distinction between the quote-unquote normal presentation of fear and then this concept of white fear. What is the difference? Well, fear is you know, what, what manifests when, when, when you're in danger, right? So it's like, I'm, my, my safety is under threat. I need to run. So, you know, an animal that is a, a, a prey animal is going to run from a predator. Um, white fear, as I argue, which I obviously didn't get to go into it too deeply in, in a short, uh, opinion piece, but mm-hmm. it is it, more of a, it's an anxiety. It's like a, a latent, neurosis almost that's based on the misrepresentation of non-white people rather than the an acute presence of, of danger so you know you know when that white police officer shot michael brown in the u.s um on the street and and I, he, you know, he said oh he was like a demon coming at me i was scared and then a white police officer who walked into a black man's home both in jean and shot him saying he was i thought he was an intruder so it's like this, this anxiety towards this image of, of black men that is not based in any sort of reality, but in the white imagination, and it manifests in these moments, and they act, like these police officers act on this alleged fear, but the presence of danger is, is, is in the white body, because it's the white body that is then killing and shooting and, and whatever the the non-white person. So, so really, it, it's the those, in those instances, it's it's a black person who should be afraid and obviously is, but we don't really recognise that fear. We indulge and we recognise the white fear that permits this violence, and then it happens on the mass scale, you know, with the drone strikes in in the Middle East and all these um, 
other manifestations of it. So why fear is not afraid of reality. It's afraid of its own imagination and the way it's constructed, you know, the Arab other and and the black other. And Mm. white fear is the danger uh, as opposed to what white fear is afraid of. And and it needs to kind of reckon with that misrepresentation in its its own mind if, if we're kind of to get anywhere in this this discourse that we, we keep having about racism. Mm. Yeah, and I, I think um, we really, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> sorry, we really saw that play out over the weekend um, in two particularly horrific shootings in America. This, like you say, this imagined or this, um, that the white fear is the dangerous part of this. Yeah, so, mm. yeah, so, I mean, in one week, uh, I mean, I know mass shootings are happening all the time in the U.S., but, but within one week we had some a white man trying to enter a black church, couldn't get in. Mm. So he just did the next best thing and killed, like, these two random people in, in a supermarket, mm. one of them apparently in front of his grandson, and then walking into a, a synagogue and choosing a synagogue that helped refugees. So you see how it's all linked. Yes. Yeah, because exactly. of this fear that that somehow whiteness or white people are in danger. But, mm. you know. And so you've written um, on this topic in that article that white itself does not denote an inherited ethnicity, but an acquired power. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, again, really complicated. I'm trying to, to distill. So uh, if you, you can. If you, if you want to get really historical about it, you can trace this all the way back to the to the time of the Crusades. Okay, so, but we'll we'll keep it into the more modern uh, <laughs> colonial context. Time constraints, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, in the in the in the colonial context, the colonies established by Europeans and on you know, by dispossession and basically genocide of of indigenous peoples, both here and and in the US uh, or in Americas, and and so. On that, on those, you know, dispossessed cultures and land, they built a society that privileged Europeans, Western Europeans, and they called themselves white people. And all of the institutions that they built and the laws and was built around privileging them. And so access, when I talk about having you know, an, an acquired power and an access to whiteness, the more you look and act like what a quote-unquote white person looks like, which is Western European uh, and particularly Anglo in Australia, then the more of these privileges you'll have, the more accepted that you will be. So so whiteness was really just, to be white was just the name that they gave to themselves. Uh, and and over time, we've kind of lost that, that the, um, you know, knowledge, just for, for want of a better word, that that it was really a political category, and now we look at it as purely a biological category, and it really, it's not. It mm. was not that, yeah. Mm. I hope that. And so then, whiteness then, in, in that sense, you've noted um, that it's fluid, and that it can be yeah. something given and something denied, um, and that fluidity in and of itself can be harmful to communities of colour, and so in that sense, you've used the phrase silencing tactic, um, mm-hmm. What does that all mean in real, like in practice? 
Okay, so in terms of given and denied, so you, you know, in the case of Australia, we'd, we'd say the Greek immigrants and Italian immigrants who were not white are now, for, for the most part, con- considered white. But that's come um, once they kind of, again, quote unquote, I'm putting a lot of scare quotes here, they kind of proved themselves and assimilated. They, they weren't a threat and they were mm-hmm. going to fit in and they were not going to disrupt the system and the order of of, you know, of, of privilege and of power, etc. And so, you know, if someone looks like they can pass for what classifies as white, then they'll be accepted and they'll enjoy to a certain extent the privileges that come with it as long as they're prepared to not rock the boat. But when they don't look the part, then you're going to struggle and especially, um, you know, if they don't act the part. So whiteness can be revoked and that's something that happened in the US, you know, post 9-11, um, so Arabs, and Arabs have never really been. Are you still there? Mm-hmm. Sorry, I thought I thought I hung my phone hung up on you. Um, so, so Arabs were never have never really been considered white in Australia, but but in the US, um, particularly the Lebanese. Uh, so the ones who were fairer than other Arabs, pretty much kind of were. But then after 9/11, the intense focus on the Middle East and Arabs and Muslims suddenly made them suspect again. Mm. So they became kind of non-white, just like that. Uh, so that's how, you know, it works. And, and even, you know, in this post, like, the the re-rise of, 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 of anti-Semitism, not that it ever really went away, but, but often, like, in critical race theory, you'll, you'll, you'll hear about how, you know, Irish were not white and then became white and, and Jewish people were not white and became white. But what... We can see if we look, you know, the last couple of years in particular with the rise of Trump is this renewed intensity of, of anti-Semitism and blaming Jewish people mm. for plots and controlling things that is almost like this process of, of them being revoked from that, that white, mm. that, that, that privilege of, of being accepted as one of the, the, the well, as one of the, the, the kind of the, the white people that, that are not suspect, that are not plotting to take down white societies and I think that this shooting in the synagogue is, is would be you know a herald of that yeah yeah and in terms of the silencing tactics so to just to be really brief so when I and I've been writing about racism for almost 10 years and most of that time is the responses that I get as in the, the angry responses that like you're Arab mongrel you're a horrible hideous June coon go back to Saudi Arabia not that I've ever been there but and, and so really, you know, highlighting my, you know, slightly browner skin and my hair and the way I looked and, and my facial features. Mm. And now, um, because there's so much talk about white and whiteness and, and then particularly after this, that racial dolezal, um, mm. uh, story, what I'm, what I'm getting a lot of, and I'm seeing it happening to a lot of others as well that write about this stuff is we're being told, well, you know what? You're actually white. What is wrong with you? As if you're not white. Look at you. So it's this this strange um, this way that racism adapts. It's either kind of completely reducing us to our ethnicity, or it's just erasing mm. from altogether. It's like saying, "Well, you have no right to say this because actually you are white." And it's like what? Yeah, <laughs> you know? like weaponizing but, it for their own purposes. Depending yeah, exactly. On, so yeah. it's, it's basically just yeah, just aimed at just shut up, like mm. stop disrupting this this great this system that works for me even though it doesn't really work for anyone yeah. except the, the people at the top, and that's when it intersects with, with 
you know, economics and class. Mm. But we hardly ever get to that point where we start to talk about that intersection of, of, of class and race because they always try to just shut us down as soon as we mention race. So Yeah. And so in that in that piece, Raising the White Flag, you um you recall a 20th century historian who noted that the dominance of white supremacy was often, often upheld under the pretext of protecting white women. And so now, in recent years, we're seeing this reoccurring. Um, I mean, it has always reoccurred, but we're mm-hmm. specifically talking about it more, I suppose. Um, and we also see white women upholding white supremacy themselves in very, you know, voting in Trump kind of ways. Um, so you've written about the white damsel in distress causing serious harm to women of colour in a fantastic article titled How White Women Use Strategic Tears to Silence Women of Colour. Can you talk to us about the idea behind that article and, and why you wrote it? Yeah, well, first, um, you know, I'll say white, white women have always been upholders of white supremacy. And I think there's there's a myth that going around that, that white women have historically been divorced from that and that they, they were completely at the whim of, of white men and had nothing to do with the establishment of white supremacy. That, that's not true. They, they, were, they were subordinate members of the white race, there's no doubt about that, but they were subordinate members of a dominant supremacist class. And in their own way, uh, they, they did um, uphold that. And, and that's, you know, that, that, that historian that, that you mentioned, Doc McCulloch, the Australian historian, and, and his great book on in the, the, the situation in southern Rhodesia, what is now Zimbabwe, of how white women negotiated their, their um, sort of second-class status, in a sense, uh, within a dominant race. And they you know, they, they pushed for, like, the, the you know, outlawing uh, sex work um, on the part you know, of white women. They, they pushed for anti-miscegenation laws. So they wanted to retain sort of this, this supremacy of, of, of white virtue and white womanhood and white the white race. Uh, so they, they, they and, and similar sort of, you know situations in the US with the suffragists sort of building mm-hmm. saying we need to we deserve the vote before the black man and giving white women the vote will will enhance white supremacy it won't undo it. So we need to. I think really accept that, that they have always and upheld that and will better understand why women now still vote for Trump and other, you know, men like that that are not good for any woman. And mm. if they would sort of let go of this idea of being a, a, a second-class citizen or a second in a supremacist race, um and have a you know, push for a more equal or equitable society. Um, uh, but in terms of the article, you know that that came about quite slowly. This is a way of um, looking back over experiences and noting how, even though I would try to adjust my behaviour in the in situations where I was, you know, either confronting a white woman about something that she did or I think she had done. Why why did this happen? Uh, so whether I was approaching it, you know, usually in a work context, but not always, um, whether I was approaching it sort of delicately and saying, hey, like, what was this all about? Or whether I was saying, did you do that? You know, mm. the response was the same. And the response would be, oh, what, no, what are you talking about? Oh, no, why are you saying this to me? Oh, you know, it's just like, 
wait, 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 wait a minute. Like, why are you upset? Why are you crying? Like, I'm the one who had this awful thing being done to me. So how am I? How are you getting all the, the sympathy? And so, yeah, uh, the more I talk to, to to other women of color and then reading um, blogs, reading academic papers, coming, you know, uh, uh, that this is this bona fide thing that happens that's kind of in a almost flown under the radar in the sense of being out in the in you know uh, of you know communities of color, people of color, particularly women of color, that talk about this kind of thing, but. But I, I'd, I'd never realised sort of the scale that, that it happens on. Mm. And again, that sort of harks back to the history. We can't, you know, escape this history of women, white women, having this strange um, role, this strange status of, of being considered like these, these, these protect, we have to protect the women. But at the same time, they were actually quite despised by white men. Um, so the, 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 the Attitudes of white men towards white women would, 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 would sort of like change from, you know, when it's just them one-on-one being, being treated quite badly, but then when as soon as the, the thought that, you know, black men or, or, or Arab men or men of any other race might, um, in essence, mate with, with their white woman, then this protection, this need to protect the white race would kick in. The white woman would be, we have to protect our women. You still see that now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really not, it's not really so much about protecting the woman, it's about protecting the, the bloodline, if you like. Uh, so mm-hmm. women, white women have kind of flitted between this role of, of victim and oppressor. And I think that still happens in these interactions. And it might give white women this sort of immediate victory because a black woman and an Arab woman has got no recourse you know if, if a white woman is crying and pointing the finger at us there's, there's really not much we can do whether whether we're wrong or whether we're right and i'm not saying we're always right because we're not obviously not there's not much we can do we just kind of have to just shut up and take it and after that happens to you a few times then it starts to wear you down and it's really quite devastating and and so it perpetuates this this kind of system because mm. In their interactions with us, white women might win, but it still means that they're subordinate in in their interactions with, with, with the men. Mm. Well, that was a really long winded response. No, sorry. that's. I think. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think it was great, um, and it sort of leads into what will unfortunately have to be um, our, my final question, um, yeah. just due to time constraints. So, yeah. in that way, that it's kind of a self-reinforcing um, system of oppression and all of that sort of thing like in so in various ways this idea of white fear and and white women and all of that do you think that white fear will have to be assuaged in order to be changed like are we going to have to coddle people in order to change this or do you think that the necessary tactic is actually just going to have to be something a bit more blunt and powerful yeah look i anyone who's followed my writing and my social media for a long time would would have noticed quite a definite progression in my approach and in my writing. And I think for a long time I did try to, not that I recognised the white fear as what it was, but I did try to write in that more of a gentle sort of way. And um, that's, I think, white fear and white supremacy relies on our civility and our politeness. If you can afford to be civil and polite when you're in power, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and any time we raise our voice, any time we get upset, even though we're in, we have a legitimate right to do so because we're trying to challenge our own, you know, our own oppression, our own marginalization and, and, and inclusion. Um, so now, well, that doesn't mean I'm saying that we should, we should throw sound critique and argument and, and allies out the window and just kind of go feral, but it does mean that this idea of coddling white feelings is, it's no longer, well, it's not a, possibility let alone a priority for me and every article I write now I write it like it might be my last in, in a way so mm-hmm. I don't let myself hold back uh, for fear of being censured and, <clears throat> and a fear of being like well what if they don't publish this I'm like this is what I have to say and if you're going to be brave enough to publish it then that's wonderful for you if you're not then I'm not going to you know I'm not going to go down this path of, of hoping that if I'm nice, that white people will be like, oh, actually, you know what? You are a human being mm. after all, and I'll, I'll treat you like I treat, you know, other white friends that I have. Um, but what that White Tears article showed me is that white people are aware of their privileged status, even when they claim to be anti-racist and progressive. They're aware of this status, and they're conditioned into a false sense of superiority, and they don't want to lose that. They don't want to lose that. So when a woman of colour challenges that in a white woman, um, often without even necessarily realising what that's what she's doing, that she might just be disagreeing with a white woman or, or objecting to her treatment at, at work. But when she challenges that, then she's going to get punished. Mm. And I've, you know, I've been doing interviews because I'm turning that article into a book. And this just plays out again and again here in the US and in other countries. And what I've sort of, come to, to see is that we're treated, as in women of colour, we're, we're treated like we're either pets or threats, you know, pets or threats. So yeah. as soon as we challenge this status of, of being this pet, it's like, oh, you're my friend, you know, my arrow friend, you're my black friend, uh, we become this sort of threat that has to be sort of neutralised. Yeah. And that's, that's no way for anyone to live, right? So, you know... So I think we have to be like exist in this state of anger and yell at every white person we see. No, but this coddling white feelings and being like, oh, you know, I mean, come on, like they're they're the, still the dominant race. Like yeah. they're again this anxiety, this fear they have of us. Like I, I don't know whether it's this fear that we're going to treat them the way they've been treating us, but you know, the people of color I talk to, that's that's not the aim. You know, we don't want we don't want this endless power struggle of who's in control and, and, and who gets to dominate who. Yeah, equality. And, and ultimately, I'll, I'll... Yeah, and mm. ultimately, like, oh, you know, I'll finish the way we started. It's not about the skin colour. Like, it's about toppling this, this false hierarchy that's just existed for too long and it's just mm. had too many casualties and it's just caused too much suffering. And if we want to create this kind of world where we are all able to be complete human beings and relate to each other in that way... You know, and I don't accept for myself that I'm either a pet or a threat, and I won't accept it for other women of colour either. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Ruby. It's been really Thank fantastic you, that, to hear that. from you. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Bye. Fight for your mic. Want to support 3CR's diverse and independent voices? Well, it's not too late, and we still need your support. Donate now by calling 9419 8377 or donate online at www.3cr.org.au or post us a cheque or money order. 
to Post Office Box 1277, Collingwood 3066. Right for your mind. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. Lauren, that interview was amazing. Can't wait to talk about that more. I want to listen to that again. It was incredible. Um, we're going to jump straight into another interview now with Angus Cleland, who is the CEO of Mental Health Victoria. Thank you for joining us this morning, Angus. Oh, thanks for having me on your program. <laughs> so the Andrews government has announced a Royal Commission into Mental Health last week. Where has this come from? Well, look, I guess it's come from many years of patient um, advocacy, but um, here in Victoria we've got some enormous challenges within our mental health system, uh, and that's translated into shortages and great pressure on parts of the system like the emergency departments. Now, the past um, several years, um, organisations like mine, doctors, nurses, carers, consumers, police and ambulance service providers and others have been advocating for major change uh, and the result is um, the announcement of, um, of this Royal Commission. So um, it um, has been a very large collective effort in many ways and uh, no doubt your listeners will have picked up on all of the stories in the media and so on about um, various problems that we face within the system. So it, it really is the culmination of, um, of all of that activity over the past few years. Yeah, right. So, so you mentioned... Um emergency department. So does that mean that people um, experiencing various mental health concerns will end up in the emergency department uh, because there isn't the services available to support them you know, prior to, to getting to that point? That, that's absolutely right. And we come from a place where um, we want to prevent people getting so unwell that they have to go to an emergency department. But sadly, here in Victoria and also around the country, there simply aren't enough services between, for example, a general practitioner and a hospital emergency department. Here in Victoria, um, we've seen the impact of that lack of services through the rates of people presenting at um, emergency departments with a mental health-related um, issue or concern. Over the last four years, those numbers have gone up over 19%. Wow. Um, and to put it into numbers, it, it is huge. To put it into numbers, it's over 52,000 people a year. Every 10 minutes now, someone is presenting at an emergency department um, with a mental health-related um, concern. And those people, unfortunately, um, tend to um, wait longer within emergency departments um, and... Uh, um, have to um, uh, effectively be rationed services, if, uh, for example, in patient beds and so on, or alternatively they're sent home because there simply aren't the services there for yes. people. So yeah. um, very recently there was a summit um, by, um, uh, put together by the, uh, the College of uh, Emergency Medicine around this particular issue that raised some of these concerns, but um, it is an incredibly challenging situation the fact that we don't have the services available to stop people getting so unwell in the first place that they have to go to those yeah. uh, hospital services. I mean, this clearly demonstrates that the system is not working um, because, you know, if you have, um, a, you know, a pretty severe mental health-related issue, it's not going to be solved by going to the emergency department, you know, in one sitting. Um, and the fact that that is where people tend to end up is really, really concerning. Yeah, well, certainly the, the default um, here in Victoria is often um, you know, go to an emergency department. I mean, you can go and see your GP, which is uh, uh, terrific, and um, you might be referred to see a psychiatrist or a psychologist um, 
you know, through um, through Medicare. But beyond that, um, there aren't a great deal of other services, and particularly overnight and uh, on the weekends as well. Mm. We're all um, advocating for more uh, community-based um, and accessible services that people can access. You know, um, that doesn't mean that they have to go into hospital. Yeah. And can you talk a bit about um, what are the other issues in terms of access to mental health services for various members of society? Well, essentially there are shortages across the um, across the board, and whether it's um, um, uh, access to, you know, I guess, your general practitioner or a psychiatrist, particularly in regional areas of the state, the further you go from the city, the harder it is to, to get access to those services. Similarly, if you're an older person living in residential aged care, you're very, very limited in the, the types of services that you can um, you can access. If you're um, young, sort of uh, in that, that younger sort of under 25 demographic, there's a particular shortage of services. And uh, Professor Patrick McGorry, um, who um, no doubt uh, your um, your listeners would have heard speaking um, in the media recently, tells the, the tale that um, his service has to um, uh, turn away um, three out of every four young people who present with a mental health issue uh, in the west of um, in the west of the city. So, the access to services for young people, for adults, for older people are very low relative to the rest of the country. And we look at the rest of the country and say, well, look, Australia as a whole doesn't um, spend enough on mental health services. Mm. And, and which is really troubling. I mean, given the fact that often. You know, when people do experience um, issues with, with mental health, it is often related to societal issues. Um, it's not just that people just have their own mental health stuff. It's that, you know, living in the world as if you're an LGBTIQA person or you're a person of colour or a woman or um, living with a disability or whatever, they're, they're, you know, all of those societal factors would feed into, you know, your own experience of, of mental health and for those people not to be adequate, adequately supported by the system is really concerning. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the, the system itself is, is very complex as well, which is part of the, the challenge that um, it is a combination of, State government provided services, Commonwealth funded services, uh, there's charities, there's um, private services, and of course we've had the introduction of the, the National, National Disability Insurance Scheme, which forms part of um, part of the system now. So it is quite a complex um, web of services that um, people have to navigate. Yeah, and so how is it? Um, can you sort of expand on that? How it is sort of organised between state and federal governments? <laughs> <laughs> I know it must. It sounds very complex, but yeah, simplified version. So, um, I guess if we start um, start within the community, um, the Commonwealth funds uh, general practitioners, um, and through GPs, you can be referred on to uh, you know, to see a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Um, the Commonwealth also funds um, some community-based mental health services through um, the primary health networks, and there are six of those in Victoria. Separate to that, a small portion of um, people with serious and complex um, um, mental, um, mental health issues are eligible for the National Disability Insurance Scheme. So that's another um, sort of aspect of Commonwealth funding. Um, at the state level, um, of course, the, uh, the state provides um, the hospital services um, and um, some community-based services as well. So um, it's quite a, a complex picture. 
We have some charitable um, organisations providing services either through state or Commonwealth funding programs or um, through their own fundraising. And um, if you're lucky, there are um, private, um, um, private services as well if you've got the insurance or if you're willing to pay. Mm. And so onto the Royal Commission, um, what sort of reforms are you hoping will come out of this? Ah, well, <laughs> we, of course, have a, have a major shopping list. But <laughs> first of all, what we, in, the, in the short to medium term, we would like to be able to raise the access, uh, sorry, the, um, the level of services and access for Victorians up to the national level. Now, for many years, Victoria um, has underfunded its um, mental health system, and that's, you know, it, it's not the, um, the, the fault, if you like, of any particular um, government. It's just the um, history of this state. So we have the lowest funding per capita uh, up until very recently and some of the lowest access rates. But what we really want to be able to do is to, uh, through the Royal Commission is one, allow all of the stakeholders the opportunity to to have their say and present uh, present to the Commission. But two, we want to be able to lock future governments into appropriately investing in mental health. And we're using that word investment um, deliberately because it appeals to you know, the, uh, the decision makers within governments in the, uh, you know, the finance and treasury departments. But um, there's a, obviously there's a health argument and there's a social argument and a justice argument around um, providing mental health services. But it also has a much larger impact on the community, the society and the economy as a whole. It means jobs and it means... Um, you know, keeping people in employment and doing all of those sort of things as much as anything else. So it really is an investment in the future of the state and we want to make sure that it is funded appropriately. Mm. And so, Angus, I know you have to, have to get your kids off to school, so I've just got one <laughs> final question for you. Um, what is, you know, as a CEO of Mental Health Victoria, what is your role in the Commission and will you be advocating for those who have the least access currently to mental health services, so some of these groups that we were talking about just before? Absolutely. In terms of the role, well, first of all, um, it's it's an election commitment from one one party, <laughs> so we have to go through a, an election um, and, and see what the result is. And we're, we're waiting for, I guess, the uh, the response um, uh, from the opposition on um, whether they support it or, or not. In terms of our role, um, we will be continuing to, to advocate. We'll be writing submissions. We'll be having summits and public meetings and. Um, goodness knows what else um, in the next couple of years if it if it gets up, and at the same time we'll be tied up um, with the, the productivity commission uh, review of the economics of mental health, and that's a national um, that's a national review, and also another uh, commission, uh, uh, royal commission, the aged care royal commission that's been announced as well, and there's a, a very large element of um, uh, mental health um, through. Um, through that particular sector that we need to look at. Well, thank you very much, Angus. We'll be watching very closely um, at Tuesday Breakfast to hear more about um, how this all plays out. So thank you very much for your time this morning. Oh, pleasure. Thanks very much for the opportunity. (laughs) What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis 
from diverse community perspectives. Done by law, 6pm Tuesdays. This year's TILDA, Melbourne Trans and Gender Diverse Film Festival, is packed with stories that represent the rich tapestry of trans and gender diverse people's lives. The program runs from Thursday the 8th to Sunday the 11th of November at Footscray Community Arts Centre and celebrates the best trans and gender diverse cinema on offer, along with Q&A sessions with festival guests and opening and closing night events. Program details and tickets are available at tildamelbourne.com. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Radio. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. Um, I'm very excited to talk to our next guest, Banok Rind. Banok Rind is a proud Yamachi Bandimaya woman from Western Australia. She's a registered nurse and currently the Deputy Executive Officer at the Koori Youth Council. Banok has a strong background in Aboriginal health and well-being and advocacy within the Aboriginal mentoring, leadership and health space. She's currently one of the ambassadors for the Close the Gap campaign. Banok has worked extensively in cultural safety within the university and health sector, as well as an associate lecturer for Indigenous health at RMIT University. Her work heavily highlights the ongoing institutional racism prevalent within health services across the country, reducing health disparities between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, and is an ambassador for the Close the Gap campaign. Banok joins us now to talk about the Nagaji project, um, which is a really, really important and very exciting project. Thank you so much for joining us today, Banok. Thank you for having me on the show, Anya. Anytime. Um, let's start by talking about what the Nagaji project is and how it all began. Yeah. So um, the Nagaji project is uh, a project led by the Koori Youth Council, and the Koori Youth Council is... Um, the representative body um, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people uh, living in Victoria. So we uh, amplify their voices, their concerns, um, and um, really advocate for change for our young people living in Victoria. So we work alongside government, um, decision-making bodies and communities um, to advance the rights and representation of our people. So Magaji... Um, was actually 18 months ago, Nagaji um, was um, given to us. Sorry, it was advised by our 15 members, 15 executive members, mm-hmm. um, and they told us that, you know, our young people that are in the youth justice system um, and how they're silenced by the system. So, Nagaji means uh, hear me in the warring language of the Wurundjeri people, mm-hmm. um, and that's that's essentially how Nagaji was born. We, um, we wanted to see the change um, in the youth justice system and how the current system treats our Aboriginal children and young people. Mm. And could you talk about the process? So you've, you've released this incredible report that I, um, that I read, um, incredible and heartbreaking. Could you talk about the process leading up to the report? What was that experience like? So the process to the report, um, our executive officer and... Um, Research Policy Officer Indy Clark and Anna Soretto um, travelled out to four community sites. Mm-hmm. So that's 
rural, regional and metro, um, and the two youth justice centres. And they basically sat down and yarned with um, Aboriginal children and Aboriginal young people who are currently experiencing um, being in the youth justice system, but mm-hmm. also have um, with past experiences as well, and asked them and yarned to them about what changes that they would like to see in the youth justice system, what changes that, that they need to see, and um, amplifying their voices. So these young people, and I think the most powerful part of Magazine as well, that it's not just the report, it's the call to action, but it's also based on listening and valuing um, and acting on the voices of our children that are in the community. So, mm. you know, these young people that were that are in that were in the system, um, you know, put their trust in the Koori Youth Council to really amplify their voices and amplify um, their voices and concerns, um, but also sharing their stories as well. That you know, it's not easy; it's hard to mm. share your voice and you know be vulnerable. But they put their trust in KYC and. You know, that's definitely what we're advocating for. Mm. And I think you guys have done an incredible job representing those voices and those stories. Um, yeah, yeah it's, it's a great report. Um, so let's talk about the changes you hope to see from this report. What, what are the, the aims of this report? Yep, so the aims of this report, so at the moment, you know, I think it's, we, we see it very commonly um, across the state is, you know, a lot of our young people are, are, are silenced by the youth justice system, but are silenced by, you know, the overall system. So what we'd like to see or what we need to see is changes to this, changes to the justice system and how our children and young people are treated. Mm. Um, again, enabling decision-making bodies and policy makers to hear us, hear me. Um, again, that's the meaning and legacy. Mm. Um, but also having preventative measures in place. And by, have, by preventative measures, I mean having Aboriginal-led, Aboriginal-owned um, solutions so that, you know, tying it into culture, community and family always paving the way because Aboriginal people know what's best for Aboriginal people. Um, mm. And so we are guided by three guiding principles and, and um, mm. that self-determination, culture, community and family and youth participation. So, so, you know, by having all, all of these things, all of these three things... Um, Hopefully, the solutions that are within the report will be actioned um, by decision-making bodies and policymakers. Yeah, the, the guiding principles um, feature prominently in the report as well and, yep. <clears throat> and talk about how they underpin the successful implementation of your solutions. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and that seems um, really important as well. Um, now, with the closure of um, Belit Gulu, which was Victoria's only Aboriginal legal service specifically for children and young people, and the building of the new Cherry Creek Youth Prison, um, it seems pretty un- uncontroversial to say that the government is moving away from implementing solutions that try to keep Aboriginal kids out of the prison pipeline. Um, and so what what can we do or listeners do to push back against this? Yeah. I think just I think a good example at the moment is right in front of us and again that's tying it back into Nagadee and, and what Nagadee is about. It's not just it's not just a report but it's a call to action. So taking examples from the Nagaji report mm. um, and looking into, you know, the Nagaji vision, mm. um, you know, where it gives children services that work, um, you know, we want to keep children safe and strong in their culture, family and communities. Mm. Having communities designed and led youth support systems, you know, we want to create just an equitable system. So, you know, using Nagaji as a prime example um, about having solutions but also preventative measures in place, um, you know, we're having support 
support services that really amplify the voices and support young people to be the best that they can be. Because, mm-hmm. um, again, just taking a step back and reflecting that these are children um, that are in the system and these are children that are going to be our future leaders, um, that are, you know, the future leaders of this country. So taking a step back and realising that these are children, but how can we support them to thrive and be the best that they can be? And um, hopefully, you know, we'll see that change happen. Yeah, yeah, hopefully. And this is a this is a very, very good step, I think, um, in that um in realizing that goal. Thank you so much for joining us today, Banok. That was that was great. Thank you so much for having me. I think three CR is the voice of the people speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. 3CR's Radical Radio book is now on sale for just $30. You can get your copy of 3CR's book at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history on sale for just $30. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. Tuesday breakfast on 3CR. We're almost at the end of our show, but we thought we might do some community service announcements before. Yes. Before leaving. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so um, the first one is on the sixth of sorry, the ninth of November, Friday, six p.m. at the State Library of Victoria. There's a stop. Labor's public housing sell-offs. Um, so about you know opposing greedy developers and in favour of public housing. So a good event to show up to. So that's 9th of November, Friday, 6pm. And there's also um, a a rally for um, stopping uh, deportations, and this is for the um, deportation of Huen, Pryor and Nades, and that will be on Friday the 9th of November at 4pm in Collingwood. Everything's happening on the 9th of November, isn't it? Oh, yeah, true. But you can go to both because that rally is at 4 p.m. So you can go to that and then you can go straight to the um, public housing rally at 6. Yeah. And then. <laughs> and then. Oh, no. <laughs> and then come party with me. Oh, yes. <laughs> For my birthday. 
And your birthday is the ninth? It is the ninth. Woo! I know. End of an era. No, start <laughs> of <it>? another era. <laughs> um, on the 8th of November, 3CR is doing a film screening um, of the movie Bohemian Rhapsody um, for, a, for a film fundraiser event. It's happening at the Palace Westgarth Cinemas at 6.30pm. That's on the 8th of November. Did I say 9th? Oh, I don't know. Anyway, happens on the 8th. It's a Thursday. <laughs> yep. It's a great movie. It's about Queen. How could you not watch it? Yeah, mm. I've seen the trailer. It looks pretty looks sick. so good. I'm, yeah. I'm keen. Yeah. And then? And then on the 1st of November, that's in two days, um, 3CR Community Radios is doing a CD launch of Beyond the Bass 2018. It's happening um, at 184 Gertrude Street. I'm not exactly sure where that is. Mm. Um, yeah, there'll be discussions on justice, incarceration, and, and prison radio. There'll be some light refreshments, complimentary CDs, and some food. For more information, you can contact 3CR on 039419 Yeah, great. I'm really looking forward to that event mm. as well. Yeah. So many things to do in November. Mm. <laughs> it's the best month, isn't it? <laughs> Scorpio. Mm, indeed. <laughs> Mm. And so the event we went to the other day. Oh, yeah. So George and I went to this uh, gig. When was that? Two weeks ago? Yeah. 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 For the NAM um, Imagining Abolition fundraiser. And there was an artist there. His name is Daniel Elia. And so good. Oh, my God. <laughs> How have I never heard of him before? I was like, I wanted to cry tears of happiness. Yeah. Knowing the music is so beautiful and just loving. And yeah. You just, you just had that moment when you're in the crowd and you just feel so happy. Yeah, the whole room was alive. Yeah. Um, and we thought maybe we'll play a song uh, by him. It's called Sight. I got a lot on my mind, I can seem to think clearly, I know them demons around, they would never get near me, I need to control the outcome, make it what I want, what I want, deja vu, deja vu, deja vu. Listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with George and myself, Anya. Um, Lauren has already left the building. How rude! That's all I can say. Leaving us <laughs> <laughs> high and dry. Also, I want to give ourselves. a I want to give a quick plug to our Instagram account that George <laughs> has um, curated. Oh gosh. <laughs> Put it in my hands, seriously. <laughs> it's great. Um, There's only three posts in like two weeks. Yeah, and the latest one is me <laughs> <laughs> doing an interview. Yeah, um, check it out. You can see Anya. Check it out. It. We'll be covering protests as well and doing yes. it live on the, on the yes. account. So very exciting. Mm. Mm. So we're all done for today. Hey, it was a great show as always. Yeah. Thank you to all our guests yes. for, for such incredible interviews. Yeah, Angus, Ruby... Benock. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and you can listen back on 3cr.org.au forward slash Tuesday dash breakfast. You know that by heart? I know. I, That's yeah. impressive. My Twitter game is strong. <laughs> um, and I guess we'll hopefully see you all, hear you all. No, you'll hear us next, next week. week. Yeah. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye for now.